there's a lot of bad thinking in our world today. And, and we know that. Just turn on the news. And um, there's a lot of bad thinking in Paul's day, too. They lived in the Roman Empire, Greco-Roman world, and just really evil stuff going on all around them. So nothing's really new under the sun. In fact, uh, in many ways, we're better off than many generations before us because of poverty, world hunger, etc., health. Um, but still, there's a lot of, of bad stuff going on. And Paul charged Timothy <coughs> to uh, teach the truth, true doctrine, and preach the gospel. And that's the outline. Uh, verses 1 through 11 is teach true doctrine and uh, preach the truth is verse 12 through 17. Easy. Easy breezy. Let's close in prayer. Um, no, actually, let's open. Hey, and so, Lord, we, we do ask you to give insight and wisdom, um, revel, revelation to your word, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, first, uh, verse 1 through 11, teach true, true doctrine. Paul was spent, oh man, I'm on the verge of needing to cough. I have these terrible allergies from doing yard work, excuse me. <clears throat> uh, Paul spent three years in Ephesus doing uh, teaching and preaching uh, to the Ephesian church, but then he left, went to Macedonia, and he left Timothy, his young protege and disciple, in charge. A little overwhelming for young Timothy, who was about in his 30s at the time, not that young, but still overwhelming. But Timothy was charged to oppose the false teachers and to teach true doctrine. In verse 3, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, <laughs> stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or, or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Timothy was commanded or he was charged to teach sound doctrine to the church in Ephesus. This word uh, doctrine was used no less than 32 times in the three pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. Um, it came under the Greek word of doctrine or teacher or teaching or to teach. Now, why was this so important? Well, because some of these teachers within the church were promoting lies, leading people away from God and from the truth. For example, in 2 Timothy 2, we read that uh, these teachers were saying there's the physical resurrection has already taken place. Well, how does that work, you know? If the resurrection took place, then why are we here? What they're really saying is the physical resurrection is, is not a thing. It's actually just a spiritual resurrection, and that's already taken place. An earthly resurrection, if you will, and we are evidence of the resurrection, so there's really no physical resurrection. The Sadducees believed there was not a resurrection from the dead. And so that was a heresy going around. And the, these teachers within the church were teaching this. Others were distracting people from the important work of advancing the gospel by focusing on spiritual bunny trails, on myths and endless genealogies, legalistic rules resulting in controversies and speculations and divisions. For example, they were saying, if you want to be a believer, you need, to re, uh, you need to adhere to these Jewish dietary laws, you know, legalism, things like that. And so they were teaching these um, just uh, minor issues 
that were also false doctrines. But sometimes we can cease to impact the world by exhausting all of our energy on secondary issues that may be semi-important, but they're kind of bunny trails. Um, Might be important to you, but they're not integral to advancing the gospel and God's work in the world. For example, um, like the Apostles' Creed would be the essentials, you know, but but the non-essentials or the money trails would be how churches fight over church finances. How much do we need to save and how much should we spend? What, what should we spend it on? And, and so, I mean, so many churches have divided over finances or uh, church remodeling differences like decorations or the, obviously the music wars of yesteryear. A lot of churches split over that or whether what's appropriate to have in the sanctuary? Can we have concerts in the sanctuary? And what type of concerts? And, and so people fight in war and, or what we can wear to church, what's appropriate. Sometimes when churches change the time and the schedule for worship services or, or they drop programs, then there's major wars break out in the church. Uh, more recently, show we were masks or no masks and people go at other churches because, you know, and so uh, these are may be important issues in some respects, but they're minor spiritual bunny, or not even spiritual, they're bunny trails that really distract us from doing the work of God. Other churches divide over more major issues, theological issues that can be supported from Scripture either way. We can agree to disagree on these issues rather than it's my way or the highway. If you don't agree exactly like I do as your senior pastor, then you really will not see much ministry here. um, You won't be comfortable here. But there's a lot of issues that you can support biblically where it's okay to agree to disagree, like the mode of baptism. Many denominations have differing views on this, and they all love Jesus. Or the timetable of Christ's second coming. It's called eschatology. Premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial. Or the role of Israel in the end times. Um, or our view on wars and fighting and enlistment and all these things, or free will versus predestination, or politically, you know, which side you line up with, or are you in the middle, or whatever, or the use of alcohol, things like this. You know, they're important issues, but we can agree to disagree and still respect one another. These differences created controversies, though, and divisions in the church and disunity rather than advancing God's work. How do we advance God's work? Through prayer, through worship, through evangelism, through discipleship, through service. These are the essential things. In the covenant church, we can agree to disagree agreeably. It makes, it gives us a freedom here in our denomination, um, we still abide by God's word as a truth. This is God's word. Where is it written? This is very important to us. But we recognize that there are so many theological issues historically where Christians have lined up on different sides. But there are also issues that we can't ignore. We must address in the church that we would deem essential. Timothy was given a high responsibility to teach sound doctrine, and we are too. One of the more pervasive false doctrines that is gripping our culture these days that we must address is that of relativism, or there's no absolute truth that is true for everyone. Our culture, we, they, they bristle at that thought. 
There's no absolute truth. This is not an absolute truth. Rather, what is true for you may, be true, may not be true for me, and so you own your truth, I own my truth, and we'll get along and just love each other. There's no absolute truth. For example, a few years ago, an interfaith group of 10,000 leaders met in the Vatican in Rome, and the group included the Dalai Lama and the Muslim Imam W.D. Muhammad, and their pope, the Pope was there, and there were many pastors and priests An outspoken Hindu woman was quoted saying, (coughs) it was refreshing to note that the the idea that all religions have universal truths and are merely different paths to the same goal. And that was accepted as a given from the outset by all delegates without a single dissenting voice. Oh, that's wonderful. We all get along. Let's have a group hug. Uh, And the same delegates also endorsed general condemnation of aggressive proselytizing, which means the end result of syncretism in free societies will be the anti-conversion laws or prohibitions against sharing your faith, the Christian witness. This euphemism in the law may become known as religious freedom, ironically. Other false doctrines we must address and confront are um, the authority of Scripture, um, whether it's authoritative or not. And we know many churches, many even Christian churches say the truth is ever evolving. We can't really look at the Bible here because it's ever evolving. And yeah, there are truths in here. But um, so other issues surrounding the sexual ethic, um, universalism, and um, there's a thing called Christian nationalism, which does not mean patriotism. We could be very patriotic for a country, but the Christian nationalism is not scriptural, and there's a difference, and I won't get into that yet. Um, But for many church leaders, it's intimidating uh, to teach these issues in the church, as it would have been for Timothy in Ephesus. He didn't feel qualified. He had excuses, and you read through the letters, and he gives these excuses like, I'm too young. I feel too young. I'm too inexperienced. Paul was experienced, not me. I'm unqualified. I feel unworthy. I'm afraid. Uh, So Paul set out to inspire Timothy as he moves through chapter 1. He said in verse 1, Timothy, teach by God's authority. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. In other words, Paul says, I have been given my authority by the charge of God. And then he, say, he goes on to say, Timothy, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. Timothy, you have been given the same charge to go charge people. Now this word charge was a strict order from a superior officer. That's where the word came from. And it was used eight times in these two letters. I charge you or I command you. It it's, carries a lot of weight. Timothy, you've been charged just as I've been charged by God himself and our Lord Jesus, Paul says. Uh, to whom God has called, he will equip. Timothy. <coughs> Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. Um, don't ever try to drink Propel when you try to preach. Yeah, I grabbed the wrong bottle. I thought this was water. <clears throat> Jesus came to teach them. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, 
Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. This was Jesus' charge to us. It's called the Great Commission, to make disciples, to teach others everything that we've learned from him. This is the Great Commission, but the church has adopted it as the Great Suggestion. Do we make disciples? Do we pass on our faith to the younger believers or the newer believers? Um, Jesus' great commission was not the great suggestion. If, if you were to meet a new believer, say and someone were to come here and say, I'm a new believer here in church, then, and I would ask you, can you meet with this person and can you disciple them? You'd think, who, me? I'm not a pastor. I don't know how to disciple anyone. Discipleship is simply taking what you've learned for the past 30 or 40 years and passing it on to the next generation. Take, inviting them out for a Coke or for lunch. And hey, how's it going with your new faith? You have any questions? You will be amazed at how the Holy Spirit will prompt you and give you words and wisdom from your 40 or 20 years of being raised in the church. You might be thinking, Lord, I've only been in the church for 50 years. I need another 10 years to feel confident. No, you don't. You, we have so much more information than even the disciples had because we have the complete word of God. Uh, so let's be faithful in that. You have been given God's authority to do that. I felt intimidated when I was a young youth pastor and a dad said, can you disciple me? And I'm thinking, what? You're a dad. You work at Purdue University. You have your doctorate. And he said, I also have a friend in my de department as well, another doctor. I'm thinking, I'm a youth pastor. I'm comfortable with middle school students. And so with fear and trepidation, I started to meet with them. They invited two other colleagues. So there were four of them. And I was meeting with these four men who had these, you know, degrees out, out the, you know. And, and here I am meeting with them. And I was amazed to find out that these guys are no different than my middle schoolers or my high schoolers. They have the same insecurities, the same relational difficulties, the same questions, the same everything. They're adults trapped in teenager bodies. They have their degrees, but they still had the same questions that we all have. Don't be intimidated, John. I said, okay. And so the Lord really taught me and, and gave me confidence through that. Um, and so... Uh, <clears throat> If we're experiencing a breakdown of morality in our culture, perhaps some of the blame might be owned by us, the church, because we haven't fulfilled the Great Commission. It's rather known as the Great Omission. You know, we can point our fingers at all the bad people. Jesus said, you know what? You are the salt and the light of this world. You know, if you're the only preservative for my world, and you're the only thing that will make things improve, my church, my people. And if you're not doing it, then the culture and the world will continue to go the way it's going. It's up to us, not just this church, but all the churches collective together, working toward the work of God. Occasionally I forget, I put leftovers away in the fridge, um, or I forget to put them in the fridge, and the day goes by, I come home at night, and we have to throw the food down the disposal, um, because it's kind of spoiled, because it hasn't been preserved. Um, well, we are the salt of the earth. We are the preservative. So, Timothy, 
Um, he, uh, Paul goes on, he says, uh, teach by my authority. And then he goes on and says, teach by my grace, by my grace. Grace and peace and mercy from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, Timothy. Um, this is what you have, Timothy. You have God's grace, his mercy, his peace. Uh, now, when we think of grace, we think of our salvation, saved by grace, amazing grace. But we're, we're not only just saved by grace, we serve by grace. It's God's resources at Christ's expense, his strength, his wisdom, his peace. Um, and so we read in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he consider me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, Paul is saying. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. He's not talking about a salvation. He's talking about the Lord's provision in every other way. It's poured out on me abundantly along with faith and love are in Christ Jesus. So if you feel nervous about making disciples, God does not call the equipped. He equips the called with his grace. Matthew 28, 20, and surely Jesus said, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Grace is sort of like allowing Christ to live his life through us, you know. Jesus hits the grand slam, and he said, now you run the bases. And I run the bases, and this is kind of fun, you know. But it's his strength, it's his ministry working through me. I in tandem with him. What a joy. And then Timothy, teach by God's grace, uh, which means you've been accepted as well. This is more the salvation. Paul uses his own testimony as exhibit A. Timothy, if, you, if anyone deserves to not be used of God, it's me, Paul said. Verse 13, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. <clears throat> Verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. For, what, for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would not believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That would make a good song, wouldn't it? Paul said, if God can for forgive me and use me, Timothy, he can use you because you are accepted even when you feel unworthy. I, was, I feel like I'm the most unworthy because of my past, and yet God accepted me. And then finally he said, Timothy, by God's promise, you are chosen. Timothy, my son, in verse 18, I'm giving you this command in keeping with prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to the faith and good conscience. Timothy, you've, you've been appointed years and years ago before I even met you. Prophecies were the Lord chose us years ago, and he says, I've got to work for you. Remember my faithfulness, because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Persevere. Fulfill your call. Uh, so to whom God, to whom are we called to teach the uh, true doctrine and warn against false doctrine? And as I read that through the letters here, I noticed that Paul was continually correcting and rebuking the insiders. Like the insiders to those in verse 7 who want to be teachers of the law, 
but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. To those inside the church, you are to teach and rebuke and confront. Um, What about those outside? First, First Corinthians, Paul writes, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Yes. Well, God will judge those outside the church. You love them out there. So, what are we to do with the outsiders then? Well, he goes on to say you're to preach the gospel. I was like, oh, whoa, praise the Lord. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jackie. That's good. You want to propel, Jackie? Thank you. Um, we're to preach the gospel to those who are on the outside. Mm. Um, and the gospel means what? It means good news, doesn't it? Yep. Gospel means good news. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, this is the good news, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And then, and then beyond that, he comes to reside within us by his Spirit and live through us. That's the Gospel. That is incredibly good news. But sometimes we preachers think we need to scare or shame people into the kingdom, into repentance repentance uh we're, we're, we preach like you are children of the devil you must repent god hates drunkenness and orgies and lust and selfishness he's going to judge you by casting you into the lake of fire for all eternity if you don't turn from your w- wicked ways and by the way god loves you you know when the world hears that type of rhetoric they're like shut up uh, the gospel means good news Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the theologian during the World War II, wrote, the love of Christ for the sinner in itself is the condemnation of sin. It is his expression of extreme hatred of sin when we love others. The disciples of Christ are to love unconditionally. Let me give you an example. I did a funeral yesterday. and or Was it yesterday or two days ago? Yesterday. And one of the sons of the deceased man got up and he shared an amazing testimony he just said my dad and i we became estranged for years because my dad was you know he did something to offend me and we just uh. and so i moved to a different state or a different city whatever far away and so we just ignored each other but you know i knew christ and my dad really didn't know christ and so the holy spirit just started working on me saying reconcile with your dad make things right with your dad over and over again just pound 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 and so finally he scheduled a return trip to mcpherson invited his dad out to breakfast they met in a restaurant and after small talk finally the dad said so what is it you want why did you invite me here dad i invited you here because i want to make things right with you because i love you you're my dad i want to be restored this blew the father away and so they continued the conversation back at home, and uh, the son was able to share the gospel of good news with his dad. His dad eventually responded and surrendered his life to Christ for the remainder of his years. That's good news. That's good news. Um, it's pursuing someone as a believer in Christ who is, who is lost. Preach the gospel to outsiders. Um, Romans 2.4 says, It's God's kindness 
that leads us to repentance. It's not his shaming, it's not his condemnation, but it's his kindness. Rather than oppose those who are the evildoers out here who are responsible for our culture going down the tubes and messing up the world, Paul gives us an example of the right kind of attitude to display in the world. The Apostle Paul, and this is what he says in verse 15. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example to those who are yet to believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul says, man, I am the one. I am the worst. Saul was changed when he met Jesus face-to-face on the road to Damascus. And then after a few days, God raised up a man named Ananias to share the good news with Saul, who became the apostle Paul. Who became then, he he said, Saul, this is what God has for you, the worst of sinners, he has risen you up, he has called you, and he's, he's chosen you to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel, Acts 9.15. Jesus said it this way, the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. But didn't Jesus rebuke sinners at times? Didn't he not overturn the tables like this of the money changers and whatnot? I said, yes, he did. And those sinners were the religious insiders time and time again. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the scribes and the Sadducees. He corrected these people in his letters. They were insiders. They were letters written to churches. Acts 17, the apostle Paul would say, to the Greeks, I become like a Greek in order to save the Greeks. In in Acts 17, people of Athens, Paul writes, I see that in every way. You're very religious. You serve an unknown God. Let me tell you about this unknown God. He got down on their level. He invited them into conversation. He said, you know, I I can see that you're religious people, man. I I have huge props for you. Uh, But let me tell you who that unknown God is. He didn't go with a, you are sinners, that type of attitude. We see that Paul's motive for teaching, correcting, and rebuking was love. In verse 5, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. And like the Pharisees, we can sometimes become experts in God's word and the truth, but lack love. Um, and work against the very work of God. C.S. Lewis put it this way, it is Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the true word of God. Jesus is the living word of God, right? The Bible, read in the right spirit with the guidance of good teachers, will bring us to him, the living word of God. We must not use the Bible as a sort of encyclopedia out of which text uh, can be taken to use as weapons. So this is the written word of God, but all of the written word of God is here to point us to the living word of God. Jesus Christ is the living word. And the spoken word directs to the living word of God as well. So what was Paul's strategy for proclaiming the gospel? This is my last point here. Um, In verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. The law is good when used properly, but it was used improperly in a legalistic way. If you want to be a believer, you have to do this and this and this and this and this, and if you do this, then you can belong to us. 
That's legalism. That's the law used in an improper way. Um, the law and the commandments um, has to work in tandem with the gospel, the good news. The law without the gospel of grace is like offering a medical diagnosis without offering the hope for a cure. A doctor informs you that you have life-threatening disease, and he says, sorry, or she says, sorry, Charlie, that's your, that's your diagnosis, see you later. But offering the gospel without the law is offering uh, the good news to people who don't recognize their need for it. Like if you bump into someone downtown and say, hey, buddy, you know that God loves you and Jesus died for you and he wants to save you? The person might look at you and say, saved? I'm, I'm not lost. Get out of my face, dude. Because they don't recognize their need. So how did Paul use the law property in verse 9 and 11? We know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly, the sinful, the unholy, and the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexual, homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel according to the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. In, the, in those three verses, Paul cites six of the Ten Commandments. Do not murder, do not dishonor your father and mother, etc. Paul utilized the law to point out the heart condition uh, of the reader so that they would be driven to understand their need for a Savior. So you go to the doctor's office. The doctor says, come on in here, sit down. I have some very serious news for you. I'm sorry, you have a terminal disease. So he sees the patient begin to shake, or, and, and he thinks to himself, or she thinks to himself, okay, he's beginning to see the seriousness of the situation here. And she brings out the charts and the x-rays and shows the patient um, seeping through, the poison seeping through their system. And, uh, and so he hears all this news for about 10 minutes. And when he's sitting there trembling after 10 minutes, do you think he'd be ready to hear the cure when the doctor shares? You bet. They would grab it. They would gulp it down. The, the knowledge of the disease was so horrific that they were ready to hear the cure. They had a strong desire to know, what can I do now? So the strategy does not imply preaching hellfire and brimstone to people. But when we use the law, we can do so in a very gentle, relational way. I've used it many times. People who aren't saved, they think they're good enough. So I asked them, so when you, if you happen to die sometime, what, what do you think will happen to you afterwards? Well, I'll go to heaven. Well, how do you know? Well, because, I, because I'm a good person. Well, how good do you have to be? Well, I don't know. I, don't, I'm not, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't um, committed an adultery. I, I, you know, I haven't, uh, I'm not a drug addict, whatever, you know? Well, let, you mind if we look at some of the commands that God has given us, like what you just mentioned? Yeah, it's all right. So you look at just the Ten Commandments, and then I've, I've shared this before. You, the first one, don't have any idols before God. Have you ever, and I ask, have you ever put anything as more important over God? Well, yeah. I, I have too, man, uh, many times. Uh, have, you always dishon have you always honored your mother and father? Well, no. Who has? No one, neither of high. You know, I've dishonored them many times, unfortunately. And so you just tick down all the Ten Commandments. 
Well, you say you said you didn't, have never murdered before, but Jesus said that if you've been angry with someone and harbored hate or bitterness in your heart, then you've committed murder in your heart. Have you ever done that? Well, yeah. Well, so have I. So we're guilty on all ten accounts. We're guilty. So when we stand before God one day, a holy, righteous, and perfect God, and he says, why do you deserve to enter into my kingdom, into heaven, what will we say? And then usually silence. And then I say, can I share with you how I can be confident that I will be welcomed into his kingdom? And then I present the gospel. It's not because of my righteousness. It's because of the righteousness of another that I can uh, be in right relationship with God. And so Paul goes on to say in verse 13, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief and the grace of our Lord was poured out on me. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. God withholds that judgment because the judgment was placed on Jesus on the cross rather than on us. And grace was being given um, a gift that we don't deserve. So mercy is not receiving what we do deserve, namely eternal separation, and grace is a, a gift that we receive that we don't deserve. Here's verse 15. So here's the trustworthy saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. And so we read that already. So in conclusion, um, because the alarm's going off, uh, Paul used his testimony to highlight the gospel. He was a blasphemer at one time, turning people away from Jesus through his threats and violence. He says, you deny Christ or you die, man. And Paul's life was radically changed, though, when he came face to face with Jesus and heard the good news. Paul went from persecutor to preacher. He went from murderer to missionary. And here's the deal. Because of Paul's humility and the way he dealt with people, people responded to him. As, as they did to Jesus, you know, who, who welcomed the sinners, who the sinners just crowded around and they loved Jesus. It was the religious people that had an issue with Jesus, you know. And, uh, and, and I want to contend that when we're dealing with insiders, family of God, we can speak hard truth to one another. We can confront each other at times when we have relationship with them, just like we would our son or daughter or wife or husband or whoever, you know. We speak hard truths because we love them, and that's okay. We're, we're to teach the true doctrine, if you will, to insiders. But to those who are outsides, outsiders, we're to preach the good news. We're to love our enemy. Um, and in so doing, it's God's kindness that will lead them to repentance. Um, sometimes we reverse that, don't we? We treat the insiders as, oh, man, we're family. We're just going to love and accept each other, overlook things. And we treat the outsiders with condemnation and judgment. And that's not how it should be. That's not how Jesus was. And that's not how Paul the Apostle demonstrated in his attitude either. So let's pray. And so, Lord Jesus, uh, I pray that you help us to wrap our minds around this a little bit and help us to grapple with it. Help us to ask questions and discuss things where there's disagreement, Lord. Um, but whatever, Lord, can you continue to speak to each person by your spirit, Lord, uh, as to how we need to apply this to our lives. We thank you, Lord, for your grace 
and your mercy. We thank you for the Apostle Paul's attitude, Lord, how humble and gentle he was, uh, especially um, with his testimony. And so, Lord, we ask that we have, can have that same demeanor. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.